We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. We're talking with Ron Diebert, the director of Citizen Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. Ron is a true internet guru, and we'll talk about his most recent book, Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. A great interview. Ron, thanks for coming on. Uh, we're going to talk about your new book, Reset, and some of the research that Citizens Lab has been doing. So why don't I have you start by saying, you know, whatever's on your mind on those topics. Okay, sure. Um, so why don't I begin with the book, Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. So since you you have a, a Canadian pedigree, a heritage, um, <laughs> your listeners may not know about, but for those who are listening outside of Canada, I was invited to deliver this year's Massey Lecture. And this is very prestigious lecture series in Canada that goes back to 1961 and has featured very prominent thinkers like John Kenneth Galbraith, Martin Luther King Jr., others. Um, and so it was a great opportunity to write a book for a non-academic audience because what you do with these lectures is you deliver the lectures and there's also an accompanying book. Normally they're delivered across uh, the country in five different cities, but this year they were all broadcast on CBC and that was last week. The book is my attempt to do two things. I had two aims in writing the book. One was to summarize what I see as the emerging conventional wisdom around all of the problems with not just social media, primarily social media, but our entire communications ecosystem. And so the bulk of the book is basically laying out what I call these painful truths around social media. And I do them in a kind of sequential fashion. So, you know, I guess if there's a, an argument to the book, it's the sequence of, of causal relationships that produce a lot of the externalities and bad outcomes that we associate with social media from the kind of toxic mess around the public sphere to disinformation to cyber espionage. And then the second aim of the book was to talk about or at least begin a conversation around what to do about these problems. So the, the final chapter uh, takes up this idea of us engaging in a reset, kind of pause and say, okay, things are obviously headed in the wrong direction. How do we think about uh, dealing with them? And I, I spend quite a bit of time drawing from political theory uh, roots in that chapter. So I look forward to you reading that. You, you being a Chicago person, I think you'd uh, appreciate that part of the book. I specifically tap into Republican theories of restraint, not the political party, but the, the philosophy going back to ancient Greece around checks and balances and division of power, separation of powers, and how we could think about restraint mechanisms in our own time to deal with the uh, problems around social media restraints, both with respect to both governments and to the private sector. What was the audience reaction? Was this a surprise to them? When you realize how much data is being collected on you by commercial entities, it's a, it's a bit of a shock the first time. 
So far, it's been pretty good. I, I tend to have a reaction generally for stuff that I write and talk about, which is people come up to me and say, I never want to use the internet again, <laughs> or I'm going to throw my device in, in the ocean, which of course I advise them not to do. You know, there, there is an interesting thing that I, I talk about actually in the book where you have this dawning recognition there's a kind of gestalt in the air. Uh, I think virtually everyone recognizes something is wrong with social media, with their own personal habits, with their attachment to devices, and yet they can't uh, do without them. And they acknowledge that there is this kind of data vacuum cleaning operation going on, which has to do with the business model, of course, um, what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. For most of us, we experience this as more and more sensors around more and more applications drilling deeper and deeper into our everyday lives with security largely being an afterthought. Um, So people recognize this. I think this is part of the painful truth around it, but they find it very difficult to switch gears or to detach. And part of that has to do, of course, with just the incentive structures and disincentive structures. So, you know, it's very hard to live in today's society and not be connected. But also I spent a lot of time in the book talking about how the platforms design their technologies to be as addictive as possible. If you start with the business model being that we need to capture and retain users in order to gather data about them, then you're going to spend a lot of money on making your applications and products and services as compelling as possible. And that means these companies hire a lot of expertise from neuroscientists and you know social psychologists, not necessarily to make us think a certain way, but purely just to make these things hard to put down. Once you begin to, to kind of perceive it that way, it's hard to not notice it. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing like BF Skinner, you know, behaviorism applied at a global scale to billions of people, little buzzers going off, vibrations. And now I think studies are, are pretty convincingly showing that there are addictive qualities to all of this. When uh, the TikTok thing was, uh, when the competition was on, I talked to all of the bidders and they all said the same thing is one of the things that made it most attractive was it is what they call, it gets sticky eyeballs. Yes. People spend unusual amounts of time on TikTok because it's addictive. Yes. That part, I don't think we're going to be able to fix. I mean, I was talking to someone yesterday about some of the decisions the Clinton administration made, and I was part of it, on commercializing the internet. And one of them was light touch regulation, Mm -hmm. because we were worried, don't laugh, this was 1996, we were worried that the thing was so fragile that if we burdened it with a lot of regulation, it wouldn't get off the ground. Yeah. That might have made sense back then, but I think 2021 is going to be the year of regulation. What would you want to see when it comes to this? What uh, what are the things we need to do? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think obviously, for better or for worse, regulations now on the agenda. And of course, you know, um, from the president on down, who doesn't hesitate to talk about repealing Section 230 when you know he has a upset stomach. <laughs> So it's in the air. And I think it's about time. Of course, you know, I don't actually get into in the book, like, here are my 15 recommendations, given the the audience, it's more about Mm. how we should think about a formula or underlying recipe, hence the digging from these, these principles that we've used 
other times Mm -hmm. in other sectors, one of which I spend time on, which is antitrust. Um, Of course, a lot of people are talking about antitrust now. Mm -hmm. I I think it's important and uh, likely time that we, you know, recognize some of these huge behemoths have been engaged in predatory pricing and monopolistic practices, thinking about Amazon in particular. And one of the things that I pointed out was that antitrust originally uh, had much more than a economic rationale underlying it. If you look at how it was applied in the in the U.S. context in the early 20th century, it was as much about politics as it was economics. Uh, this idea Justice Brandeis talked about big is bad, right? Like for Republicans in general, the idea of concentration of power is something that you want to avoid. And that's where you need the lever of the state to come in. What I worry about when we start talking about regulation, precisely concerns around things like, you know, reopening or repealing Section 230, that once you start messing with something like that, you could uh, open up a Pandora's box. So, and of course, you know, you'll have all sorts of lobbying. So there's that aspect of it. You know, look at GDPR, for example, Um, a helpful, perhaps first step, but of course, you know, intense lobbying from all of the companies involved in who would be affected by it to try to shape it. So it's a daunting prospect. I think now we're recognizing, okay, we we need to do something that maybe it made sense back in the Clinton administration days to carve out a space for the innovation to take place. But now with the platform so deeply immersed in everything that we do, uh, we need to reimpose some principled democratic governance over it. And of course, you know, when I say that, I'm in the back of my head, I'm acknowledging that we face this huge prospect of what's coming over the horizon with a lot of the technology, you mentioned TikTok, coming from places like China, which is why I think there's an urgency to it. If we don't get it right in our own backyards, we won't ever be able to effectively shape what's going on down the road. I was in a conference yesterday in Berlin, and uh, one of the European speakers pointed out that the revenue of some of these big tech giants was as big as the cost of entire European governments. Amazing. So they've got a deep concern. And I think that's interesting because the Europeans are going to move, whether we move, we the Americans move or not. Mm. But when you think about what move means, does it mean breakup or does it mean a regulatory framework? Do you have a preference? Well, I think that if we just applied antitrust, for example, I think we wouldn't solve a lot of the problems that we deal with. In fact, we may make it worse in some uh, respects, because if, as I believe, the underlying core problem with a lot of the pathologies we see that we attribute to social media Mm -hmm. have to do with the underlying business model of surveillance capitalism, simply breaking up the companies won't solve that. It'd be like, I say in the book, I use the analogy, it's like breaking up a spider's nest. You just have a bunch of spiders scattering and you'll you'll end up with just more of them doing the same thing. So in addition to exercising prudent antitrust interventions where appropriate, I think we also need to find ways to get at this underlying business model. And one of the areas around that that I'm most concerned with is what I call the cesspool of the location tracking industry and the data broker industry. So this is, you know, a whole sector of parasitic firms Mm -hmm. that most people don't recognize that live off of the data 
of the large platforms and vacuum up the data that they can collect and sell it to third parties, whether it's advertisers or as we're beginning to recognize law enforcement, military, customs and border patrol and so on, um, which creates a recipe for the abuse of power. So I really zero in on, we need to get a handle on that. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I don't pretend to have a simple answer for how we would do that specifically. I just, you know, recognize that that is, it is a cesspool and the negative externalities have been passed on to consumers around that area. And it's time that we rein it in. We thought about this in the commercialization of the internet. Because the question was, NSF had been funding this thing. Who's going to fund it now that it was commercial? One idea, remember, we tried and didn't work, was micropayments. Every time you visited the site, you would build a quarter of a cent or something. The model that emerged, and this emerged outside of government, is this revenue-based advertising data-driven model. And it's hard to see what an alternative would be. So when you think of it, Would you say, no, not an alternative, just a a better regulated sector, more transparency? What's the fix here? My answer would be a bit of both. I I think that there has been this mythologizing of the Silicon Valley business model and all of the innovation around it. They've been given a pass for a long time. And we haven't even talked about the security externalities, which I'd like to get into with you. So we do need to regulate that and fine tune that industry to prevent the kind of cesspool that I talked about with these parasitic firms and all that they do and how they can be exploited. It would be useful, I think, to encourage the development of models around, let's call it social media, that don't rest on this advertising uh, revenue model, something like Mm -hmm. public interest, you know, social media. I don't see any reason why you couldn't have something like that. You know, the PBSs of social media or something like that, just alternative models. There are some that exist. In fact, growing in popularity, I've seen now Mastodon is one example, which is not based on surveillance capitalism. And it's grown quite considerably to the point where when I wrote reset in the uh, winter and and spring of this year, I kind of shrugged it off saying there aren't enough network effects for people to get involved. You need a lot of people involved in something for it to be attractive. But now I'm hearing that it's especially popular among many Chinese netizens, which is interesting. There are all sorts of Mastodon groups with Chinese speaking people, both within mainland and diaspora. So um, as long as that's uh, not subject to some kind of filtering or censorship, it's an interesting model. So the bottom line is I think we need a mixture of things. And then, you know, underlying that completely separate from tech regulation and technology itself, I talk about in Reset this other aspect of republicanism around civic virtue. And it, it may sound strange that I bring that up in conversation like this, but I really do think that we can't blame solely the tech platforms for all that we see in terms of this toxic mess in public discourse. Oh, sure. Nor should we expect them to solve it. The reality is for decades, we've ignored the important role of education in shaping what it means to be a citizen and a member of a collective. And of course, that's something that is at the heart of at least one pillar of liberal Republican theory is that you need people to be educated in terms of 
tolerance for difference and so on. I think we need to think a bit more about that because in terms of public education, there's been so much emphasis on science, technology, mathematics, engineering, at the expense of the humanities, philosophy, social sciences, and we're paying the price for it in terms of the, the behavior that we see, um, the lack of tolerance. So there's, there's some, the part of a solution has to come outside of the tech sector. I think there's growing awareness that we need this civic education as a way to fix some of this. That's a long-term solution, though. Yeah, it is a long-term solution. But meanwhile, if you look, hearings in Congress, such as they have been, you know, obviously it gives me a bit of pause to even mention it, but a bit of a circus every time you have those CEOs on there, it's kind of goofy questions and so on. But, you know, it's happening and there is a kind of spotlight on it now. And obviously there are people you know much better than I that are are looking at these matters much more seriously. The same is going on in Canada, right? There are commissions, there are, you know, studies being undertaken. In Europe, obviously, they're well ahead of the game. Even in China, I notice that there is a, a movement that is gaining, you know, some groundswell around privacy, not in relation to the state, because that would be taboo, but with respect to private companies. And, you know, as you know, there, there's a privacy regime in China, believe it or not. It's just focused on the private sector. So we have some opportunities, I think, to, as the book title says, a reset that the pandemic forced upon us as we become more reliant on big tech rather than less. They've come out winners. I think we have a a good opportunity and frankly, a right to demand more. Um, the, the trick is, you know, can we do it in a prudent way that doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater? Well, let me put you on the spot because you touched on this a couple times. I think that GDPR, you know, started out as a well-intentioned attempt to address a lot of these issues. But unfortunately, what we ended up with, and I write about this in the book, you know, on the consumer side or the user side, what we experienced GDPR as, a series of janky banners of all shapes and sizes that we just press, I accept, I consent, let me get to the content. <laughs> and uh, I, I think it's, it's well-intentioned, but ultimately ended up being not that effectual. What do you think? Oh, um, people will be surprised, but I actually sort of agree with the principles. And that's part of the reason I like Reset is that when we launched this thing, we had no idea what it was going to become, right? And particularly as much as you're worried about Chinese sensors being embedded in your toaster, or your refrigerator, we're, we're moving into a world of ubiquitous sensing. It's ridiculous. And so I've been asking, why does my toaster need a sensor? Well, apparently somebody thinks it does. But as we move into this world of ubiquitous sensing, the rules, particularly the rules that we created at this point 25 years ago, just don't work. So I like the theory of GDPR. What I've said multiple times is, and it's a more complicated story, of course, is that the business model we have, and you talked about the mythology of Silicon Valley, but it's not just myth. When I started doing this, when you started doing this, Europe had a tech industry. And their regulatory approach uh, killed it, you know. So there's basically two, two and a half companies now. Minitel. You remember Minitel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember. I used that as an example. It's like, that was, that was the French internet. Yeah. Did you like it? <laughs> That's the part that I think makes this a harder problem. 
I've asked the people I know in the commission, you know, did you guys think about this? And they said, yeah, we, we knew we tried to take innovation and technology into account when we wrote GDPR. But that's my biggest concern. And so I think the agenda, and maybe you can talk a little about this, it's going to be a transatlantic debate I, and in a way that's good because the Europeans are going to force us. I had a, someone from, I think it was the commission yesterday, say Europe's chief export is values, right? And that's a little snarky, but we are going to have the Europeans pushing for more privacy. 2021 will be the year of regulation in the US when it comes to the internet, in Canada, in Australia, in other places like India and China. So what do you think is going to happen? The world is not going to stand up and endorse GDPR. No. What do we do instead? Well, I've seen proposals for things like, you know, obviously the US is still the center of gravity. And I think it's very important to get it right there. Proposals for something like a digital platform act that maybe involves some kind of tinkering with section 230 would be welcome. It's unfortunate really that the president has, you know, thrown it out there in the way that he has linked it to the defense authorization act and everything because it confuses people and and really obscures a a really nuanced topic, right? Like this is an important regulation, not just for the Twitters and Googles of the world. It it has to do with, you know, how we treat interactive communications where people are posting things online. So it applies as much to the success of something like Wikipedia. You know, one of the things we'd like to see out of, you know, the interactive dynamic nature of the internet is something like Wikipedia. And Wikipedia could not exist without Section 230, right? So I'm not a lawyer. I'm not deep in the weeds on specific legislation. I'm just glad the conversation is on the table. There is one thing, though, that I think is not often recognized in this conversation. I try to do this in Reset, is point out the links between this you know, highly invasive, poorly regulated, prone-to-abuse technological environment that we live in and how this facilitates things like we see at Citizen Lab, especially targeted espionage. This is the uh, security externalities you brought up. Exactly. As you yourself uh, know better than anyone, there was a time, and it really wasn't that long ago, where everyone was assuming that the internet and social media would bring about democratic empowerment. And uh, it seemed that way at certain times. Like them was the days. <laughs> yeah, with the uh, you know the green movement, Arab Spring, of course. But the reality is that there's nothing more convenient for an autocrat to have their adversaries plugged in online, 24 hours a day, using devices like this that are insecure by design. Really, you know Zuckerberg's famous comment about you know move fast, break things is like a mantra for the whole industry. You know, you have security is largely an afterthought. Uh, The entire ecosystem was not developed with a well-thought security plan. So we patch backwards in an ad hoc fragmented manner. And this leaves an enormous set of opportunities for exploitation. And we live at a time, sadly, when authoritarianism is on the rise. Cyber offense is the theme of the day. So you have everybody going on the offense because defense is impossible and expensive. And then you have a huge private sector that is sprouting up all across. Like most of us think about the ones, for example, that Citizen Lab reports focus on 
Israeli spyware companies and so on. But that's like surface pond scum on a, on a much deeper well of companies that reach all the way down into you know the geolocation of this device and trading on the data to be able to monitor and ultimately neutralize through murder or other means political opposition. And that, to me, this is a crisis. This is one, as much as people focus on, oh, Twitter is so awful and we're all in these filter bubbles. Yes, that's true. But let's not forget that there is this other externality associated with this business model that we need to deal with if we care about liberal democracy. So I think one of the first times I talked to you, which was a while ago, it was that, you know, it was over some, we found some big Chinese espionage global campaign. And you said on any given week, you could probably find a dozen of them. And are things better now than they were 10 years ago? What do you think, though, better, worse, no change? So Citizen Lab was part of the team that published the very first evidence-based public report on cyber espionage called the GhostNet Report. That was in 2009. Back then, there was a threat intelligence industry, but it looked nothing like the one that exists today with Mandiant, CrowdStrike, FireEye. All of these companies now are routinely tracking threat actors and they've adopted you know, the language of naming them and so on. So there's much more visibility into what's going on, which I think is a positive aspect. And of course, we're learning more about how to defend against and identify indicators and so forth. But that's counterbalanced by, and anybody in the threat intelligence community will tell you, counterbalanced by uh, the rapidity of change on the internet and the software ecosystem, you know, just constantly creating these holes that can be exploited. And also the fact that there are many more actors involved in cyber espionage today, you know, more resources are put towards it. As I mentioned before, cyber offense is the norm and there's a huge industry servicing it. And it seeps into things that we don't normally think about in this context, law enforcement practices around facial recognition, artificial intelligence, and so on, accessing the same kind of insecurities, scraping things and and calling it information that's in the public domain, when in fact they're reaching deep into the infrastructure and into people's private lives. You know, this is an enormous recipe for the abuse of power. In my view, things are getting worse rather than better. And especially among the global South countries, they woke up after Arab Spring, realized that the internet could pose a threat to them. They didn't want to see that type of mobilization. And they went and contracted with mostly Western vendors to help them deal with it. So this is a little off topic, but you've touched on it. How useful do you think norms are? And I I can tell you my own view on that. I left the UN for a whole set of reasons, but one of the reasons was I was sitting there one day behind the chair and listening to one of the countries you love talk, and the thought popped into my head, I wonder if this is what the people who negotiated the Kellogg-Briand Pact felt like. (laughs) You tell me, what's the use of norms? I mean, it's their constraints, but there's value in them. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you brought it up. I actually have a small section at the end of Reset where I get into this. And I didn't spend anywhere near as much as you in the arenas where cyber norms were were being debated. But I, I certainly participated in some of the major forums, the London cyber process, you know, and all of these commissions and everything. And of course, 
uh, you and I had, um, uh, how many years did we attend those uh, academic conferences repeatedly on side arms? My view was that the way that norms were being discussed in those settings, I, I found it confusing. It was kind of like aspirational, like a menu. Here are the norms we want everyone to agree on. And the other side would say, well, here are the norms we want and let's negotiate and maybe we can come up with some we agree on. And, you know, the UN group of governmental experts, uh, one year they, they say, oh, here's what we can agree on. International law applies in cyberspace, just like, you know, and it's hooray, we accomplished something. And I always thought, meanwhile, I'm looking around and virtually every government that's at the table is uh, defying every single one of those norms in practice. And no one is looking at the real norms that are being propagated kind of under the radar by uh, security services, through development aid. I'm, I'm thinking about things like police training, right? Like when we talk about cyber norms, we usually think of the well-intentioned bureaucrats in the foreign affairs divisions of governments. And meanwhile, the law enforcement, the public safety public security agencies are busy traveling to countries in South America, Central America, Eurasia, and giving them tools and techniques on how to undertake mass and targeted surveillance. And that's how the norms are propagating. So I found the whole cyber norms thing well-intentioned, but a bit of a sideshow. And I personally resigned from it, such as my own intervention was, at the Freedom Online Coalition, another one of these venues where people were talking about norms in 2014, because it was a farce. Uh, we had all of these governments, including my own, mm -hmm. uh, discussing high-minded principles about how states should behave. And we just had the Snowden disclosures. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, you're talking about let's not do this, let's not do this, we'll agree not to do this. And I'm looking at these documents that are saying you're doing this as, uh, routinely. So why should I come here? If it's any consolation, the NSA closed the biggest program because they didn't think it was useful. And they had trouble managing it. It was hard to do minimization and they weren't getting that much out of it. So in that sense, things are a little better, I suppose. I don't think either one of us knows exactly what they're doing right now that may be different and more effective. That's a fair point is that it might have become superfluous. We don't know. You're right. What's been the reaction of people to the book? I mean, what's, what's been the reaction of your own government, of other governments? I mean, Yeah, I think that they, because of the, the way in which the Citizen Lab is constituted at the University of Toronto as a kind of adversarial organization, we are, and, and I, again, I, I talk a bit about this at the beginning of the book, the rationale for setting up the Citizen Lab and what my aspiration for it was, which was very much inspired by my own exploration and kind of introduction to signals intelligence and the world of intelligence gathering undertaken by states. I, I recognized as a young graduate student that there was this entire world of electronic intelligence gathering. Governments, you know, especially the more capable ones, were maneuvering through cyberspace largely beneath the radar. And I thought, geez, that's really interesting. I was especially struck. I was at a conference on disarmament gathering for the eventually what they hoped would become the verification regime for a nuclear test ban. And they had um, at this conference on disarmament meeting, seismologists, remote sensing experts, you know, K2 
chemists, you know, and, and I was struck by how, geez, the model that they're talking about here is to have a, a web of watchers who are monitoring the planet to verify whether somebody is going to cheat on this agreement around a test ban. And it dawned on me, it was like a light bulb went off. Why couldn't something like that be done from the basis of a university drawing from computer science, engineering science to watch governments and expose what they're doing? And that's kind of how the Citizen Lab got its start. And it's why also there is a definitely a feeling of, you know, it makes people in government uncomfortable, at least some sectors of, of government, because we're a watchdog. And the more successful we've been, the more that angst for them has grown to the point now where just before the pandemic, we were having some very challenging security issues. I write about in the book, but you probably already know about the fact that we were targeted by this private intelligence firm, Black Cube, made up of ex-Massad agents, uh, the same firm that convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein hired. They were trying to infiltrate my lab. And uh, that's that certainly put us in a different category of risk. Yeah. So that probably explains why people feel the way they do about us. What was the reaction of the Canadian government to that? I would have been annoyed. <laughs> I was actually, and I say this in the book, the book has a lot of narratives about some of these experiences. So it's very much a firsthand account. And I, I came away from, from that really kind of disappointed is a, a soft way of saying it, because I thought, look, you know, this is Canada's top research university and we're a renowned research lab and we were just targeted by a clandestine op- operation you think that they would say something about it condemning it, but they didn't say anything, right? I'm, I'm sure we could discern why they might not want to say anything. But actually, you know, there was a prior episode that led to all of this, which also it was disappointing to me the reaction to, which was when we uncovered that Saudi Arabia was using Israeli spyware to eavesdrop, to hack the iPhone of a Canadian permanent resident who was a confidant of Jamal Khashoggi. And, you know, when we discovered that, it was like crickets from the Canadian government. They didn't, they didn't say anything. I'm like, okay, if you are going to just sit back when Saudi Arabia is engaged in espionage against somebody inside your own country, you're going to simply invite more of it. And I thought that was, you know, really disappointing. What was the hardest part of writing the book? Actually, you know, I'll, I'll say it was a lot of fun to write. I didn't, I didn't find it challenging because in my normal day-to-day job, given the style of the work that we do, it's very clinical, very precise, so much emphasis on the evidence. It's almost like kind of forensic work and any error, any small error it can have huge implications for our reputation. So that day job is completely different than writing something like this, which is not an academic book. It was meant for what I consider to be my non-academic friends, people that maybe I play hockey with, or I'm in a yoga class with, I wanted to speak to them. And that was my target audience. It allowed me to write a book in a different voice and and tell stories. There are a lot of stories in the book. And I found that liberating, actually. In uh, 1998, the CEO of a now defunct tech company that at the time seemed like a very big deal said you have no privacy get over it and at the time I thought well what a jerk but in the intervening years I've come to realize that maybe he wasn't right then but maybe he's right now 
what does privacy look like in the future, particularly in a future where there'll just be so much data on your behavior and activity available? What does privacy even mean? Well, you know, I'm one of those people that does believe privacy is important to a liberal democratic society. You need to have a space where you can feel like you're not being watched and exposed and you want to maybe explore controversial things, etc. Certainly, there are all sorts of aspects of our social lives um, and professional lives where we want to be able to do things in private. So I think it's important that we, A, establish that this is essential human right, or it should be, should be protected by law, and um, it's essential to liberal democratic society. Now, that being said, obviously, we can't turn the clock back on the technological evolution that has happened the dynamic, you know, um, intense way in which we've all now been immersed, our digital lives turn inside out. I think this is the new reality that we have to come to grips with, and that is not going to reverse itself, I think. And furthermore, given that if we project ahead, think about the planet as a whole and some of the challenges we face as illustrated by this pandemic, you know, we're not going backwards there either. Things are only getting more tightly coupled. So we have to recognize, just as people did in smaller settings, in village-like settings, you know, you have to trade off a bit of privacy for the collective. And I think the same has to be said about the collective for the species as a whole as we move forward. To me, though, I've always thought the bigger issue is not so much about privacy as it is the potential for the abuse of power. Those two often get confused when in fact they're different. I advocate in the book that we need to really understand what that means. You know, Montesquieu, I have a quotation at the front of the book of Montesquieu and the potential for the abuse of power. I think there is a, you know, a universal tendency, part of human nature, greed, you know, short-term thinking and so on, People tend to abuse power unless there are safeguards to prevent it. And we have kind of lost sight of how important that is in the constitution of our own organized societies, our governments, and the private sector, to which it should also apply. The one thing I question on that is that I was at one of the big privacy organizations annual dinner, and they had a slide up and it said, we protect your privacy. And it showed what appeared to be an arm holding an umbrella hitting the NSA eagle over the head. And then the next slide was, we want to thank our gold and platinum sponsors. <laughs> and it was, I agree with you. I think the focus has been on preventing the abuse of power by governments. But did that open the door for lack of attention on the commercial side, on the private side? Yeah, it did. And we need to, well, first of all, I would say that there obviously has been to varying degrees and different in different countries, attention to prevention of the abuse of power when it comes to governments. But it's gone in, in cycles and waves. And I think it's fair to say that there has been a pretty significant erosion globally around the safeguards that prevent the abuse of power, simply by fact that, you know, the world is sliding into authoritarianism. If you look just globally, we got a problem. And then specifically in the U.S., if you want to look at the last four years, you know, inspectors, generals, you know, I could go on and on, right? Uh, EPA, like the agencies that whose job it is to prevent the abuse of power have been eroded, ignored, sidestepped, etc. And yeah, we need to apply those same mechanisms to the private sector. 
factor. Thinking about restraint and what restraint means and how it would be applied is the, the central motif of the book, I would say. So let me ask a final question. The old Chinese proverb, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. What's the first step in moving out on this? That's interesting. I think we need to reframe property relations when it comes to the way in which us as users are situated next to these large platforms. So part of surveillance capitalism, if you want to just use that language, is this uh, sleight of hand where through the consent process and terms of service that no one reads, we agree to allow these companies to appropriate all of our data as their property. So at the heart of, of what we're talking about is a very interesting twist in property relationships and is done legally through contracts. And what does that mean when they appropriate our data? It now means our social relationships, our movements, our preferences, even our dreams and our heart rates. So we need to turn that around somehow and restore some sense of ownership over personal data back in the hands of users. GDPR is like a, a very small step in that direction. Mm -hmm. I think there are other things, for example, the right to repair. It's perverse that we live in a world so saturated by these technologies and yet we are discouraged. And even sometimes it's made illegal for us to open up these technologies and understand what's going on beneath the surface. So I would start with that, the right to repair. Let's make it part of your right to be able to claim ownership over the data and the technology that you use in some way, claw back some of that from the big tech platforms. That's a great idea. Being able to inspect the algorithms and yes. having them open to public view. Exactly. Algorithmic accountability also has to be part of this. That doesn't mean we got to do away with or open source, you know, all of Google's, you know, secret sauce. It does mean we need some kind of public interest audit mechanism. There needs to be some, you know, maybe digital platform agency that has the power to inspect the code. Great. Thank you for being on. Thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.